Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OnFIF podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute here at OnFIF. And today we're going to be discussing some of the issues in the digital assets ecosystem, including both crypto assets and the tokenization of traditional finance. To help me with that, I'm delighted to be joined by Duncan Trenholm. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks, Lewis. And Simon Forster. Hey, Lewis. Thanks for having us on. A pleasure. And both of both of them are managing directors, global co-heads of digital assets at TPICAP. Duncan, can you give us a little bit of an overview of TPICAP and, and your involvement with the digital asset space? Sure. And very nice to be here. So TPICAP are an interdealer broker and market infrastructure provider. So we, we operate markets within the financial markets ecosystem across all of the major asset classes. Its history is in voice broking, so and providing liquidity through our voice brokers. But over time, we have gradually evolved to provide more hybrid and electronic markets as well. Our journey into digital assets started in 2017 when we were getting some client interest in crypto and Bitcoin specifically. The firm put in place a global working group to assess what are these products? What is the technology behind them that is blockchain or DLT? From that, we put together a strategy around how we thought this might affect TPI Cap and our customers. And we've been building a business out since then. And this it's really across three main pillars. The first is we run markets in crypto derivatives. We have voice brokers there globally that provide liquidity to our clients in these products. We've also launched a physical crypto asset market starting in the UK, an FCA registered venue and that provides trading in spot Bitcoin and Ethereum. And we are just starting to look at in our third pillar how we can take this technology and our experience in the other areas and bring the 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 promises and the efficiencies of DLT and blockchain-based assets to our traditional asset classes. Very exciting. Excellent. Um, So obviously, you know, the the history of TPI cap is in in traditional finance, but yeah, kind of exploring the the crypto assets world. I guess one of the, one of the big differences there is that the regulatory landscape for, for crypto assets is still quite unsettled. Can you talk a little bit about you know, looking globally, how, how the regulatory picture kind of affects the provision of liquidity and, and market structures and so on for, for the asset class. Yeah, absolutely. I think regulation is something that always shapes what TPI cap can do and how we can service our clients. Obviously, in traditional asset classes, the, the regulation tends to be well understood. It tends to be mature. It tends to be harmonized to some extent which certainly makes our activities easier when you compare and contrast the crypto, which is you know just over a decade old in terms of this new asset class. It has polarized people's opinions. Regulators have taken different views and different stances and continue to take different approaches. So we have to be quite thoughtful about the businesses that we are building and the way we service our clients. We're a, we're a UK headquartered company. Um, so for Fusion Digital Assets, which is our crypto asset spot exchange, which we're in the process of rolling out, it, it was 
reasonably easy for us to approach this within the UK and go through the process of getting the uh, AML CTF registration from the uh, UK's lead uh, regulator, the FCA. And then as we expand the platform to our global client base, we have to then take into account what the regulators around the world think of crypto and how they're approaching it. So I think for any organization, it's a challenge. I think one of the reasons we feel like we have maybe an advantage is because we are a reasonably diverse group. We have a presence, you know, our continental European presence is in Paris. We have offices around the world, which means when we think about this kind of landscape from a regulatory perspective, we have some options in terms of activity and operations that are already in existence that service our clients for other asset classes. So then we can think about it, does it make sense to add something into a particular region or into a particular country or city for crypto? But it, it, it absolutely takes some thinking and, it, and it's not it's still not clear, but it certainly feels like over the last 12 months, the regulators are starting to catch up and it's starting to become a little clearer in terms of what this may mean moving forward for TPI cabinets clients for crypto. Mm. Yeah, it certainly does seem to be a, a very dynamic time in terms of the, the regulation of crypto. And, and yeah, hopefully, as you say, that, that should make things a little bit easier. Um, it does seem like there are a lot of, well, there's a, a lot of regulatory challenges, as you alluded to, for investors or, or asset managers looking to get exposure to crypto or get their clients exposure. I guess there's also some some technical and, and operational challenges as well. Can can you expand a little bit on, on those? Sure. I think one of the things that became apparent in the last bull cycle of crypto that went through the 2021-2022 years in general was it highlighted that there was still some work to be done in terms of infrastructure of the, the platforms involved that provide access to investors. So whether that was the, the markets, whether that be the custodians that you know, and whether one of the big things that came out of that cycle was should these things be separated and segregated like they are in traditional markets rather than operated by the same the same firm uh, like we had with some crypto exchanges. I think when things go wrong, bad actors, you know, whether it was illegal activity or just, you know, lack of operational oversight that led to problems and i'm sure there was a mix out there across the various different exchanges that had issues it the first impact is you know investors become concerned very much about dealing on these platforms so i think the you know there were some themes that came out of that one was you know segregating away the role of a, an exchange from the role of a custodian because that protects customer funds you know, making sure that, you know, you maybe have separation between different activities like running a trading desk and, and operating a market. All of these things are things that, you know, are quite common in traditional markets and finan traditional financial markets have learned that the, ha the hard way over the years with their own problems in the, in the history of finance. But what we're starting to see in the crypto market now is a mix of the kind of fintechs that were involved, upskilling their products taking some things from traditional markets in terms of how they operate 
but also some traditional markets providers coming into the space and bringing what they know from running regulated markets or or providing regulated services like custody services in in traditional markets and bringing that to the crypto asset class and i think that you know that needs to be in place for this next wave of adoption you know from a broader array of investors within traditional financial markets yeah. i think the the other thing that investors and allocators need to see is a is a new narrative storyline around why why to invest in this asset class you know i think the last wave was was driven off the promise of this technology you know settlement on in the order of minutes rather than days automation of assets making them intelligent and smart and by using smart contracts you know the promise of that and you know which of these blockchains are going to be the ones that most of these assets congregate around i think for investors to come back to the market they need to start seeing these these blockchains being used at scale for something right yeah. and i think that's you know we're starting to see some early signs of that out there in the market yeah yeah i think that's a, a really good point we we saw a lot of there was a lot of excitement around the the possibilities but i suppose it's been it's been going long enough now that we we kind of want to see some of that delivered upon people really building uh, those applications and i think we are seeing bits of that but i suppose that needs to to spread a little bit i just wanted to go back to the point you were you were making about the segregation of different functions uh, and ask a, a little bit more about that because i think it's a really important one i think it's pretty clear you know there there's a lot of potential for for you know moral hazard if you have a, a trading desk linked to an exchange you know, front running orders and so on on the the topic of custody and exchange being separate people some people in the crypto ecosystem talk a little bit about you know the efficiencies of, of order matching that you can get if you if you integrate these things and uh, you know you with dlt technology <laughs> with dlt you, you kind of don't have so many concerns about security that that maybe need the segregation. Can you talk a little bit about if there if there are any areas where you feel like vertical integration is is something desirable? I guess. Yeah, I I think it is a bit of a continuum. You know, mm-hmm. a completely integrated vertical stack will create some level of efficiency, but as we saw through the events of last year, it also comes with some very serious real world risks so it's where do and and i guess we always think about things through the lens of our clients and we are an institutional facing organization so what what do they look to and what do they expect when they are accessing a market and often again because we've seen this develop and evolve in the traditional asset classes we are involved in there needs to be some level of segregation. Otherwise, you do have this kind of single point of failure. So something as simplistic as execution and custody, in our view, they are absolutely necessary to be segregated and separate and distinct from a service provider perspective. And that was something we believed very early on in the journey. We you know, were quite fortunate to connect with Fidelity back in 2018, who felt like the right partner for us. They are a phenomenal brand, uh, and that fits with who we are and what we do at TPI Cap. And when we go and speak to our clients, when we present them with a FCA-registered crypto asset exchange alongside this independent and segregated custody solution from a brand that resonates such as Fidelity that also have the 
AML CTF registration with the FCA, that gives our clients and customers confidence and trust that they can access the market and do so safely and securely. Now, you may give away some of the efficiencies potentially, but what you do have is this kind of confidence that your assets are secure, that you are not getting front run, that you are operating or you're engaging in a marketplace that adheres to the sort of standards you expect from other asset classes. And one of the challenges I think as an industry we face is for institutions to become comfortable accessing this asset class, they need to see providers that tick certain boxes. And that's from a regulation perspective. That's also from a operating model perspective. And without that, the additional bells and whistles are largely irrelevant because, you know, they would never be in a position to be able to move forward. So some of those kind of foundational layers or the building blocks, which aren't particularly sexy, but are really fundamental to our clients getting comfortable within this asset class. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. I, and I suppose, you know, given the, the couple of years we've had uh, trust in institutions is going to be a really big part of what, what kind of gives people the, the confidence to adopt and allocate more to, to the asset class. Uh, anything else you want to add on, on the, maybe the challenges that traditional financial institutions that are, you know, looking to, to build the infrastructure and services needed for, for interacting with crypto? Any, anything you want to add on the challenges that they're, they're facing? Or maybe some of the benefits that, that they might be able to attract? So I think as a institution building infrastructure in, in crypto, I think what we've observed from our clients and, and partners in general is over the course of the sort of last, let's say, five years, having senior sponsorship and buy-in to efforts is a prerequisite to being able to mobilize something in the asset class because it has had such a checkered history and it has gone through such extreme swings of going from, you know, it's going to change the world to it's a product only used for money launderers with the truth being, you know, somewhere in between. I think having that senior sponsorship, we've, we've observed some partners and clients that have been able to make really good progress and others that, maybe haven't at this stage. I think depending on where your organization is based, the regulatory landscape in that particular country, particularly the country of your headquarters or your, your lead regulator, has a massive impact on your ability to mobilize services in, in this area. And we touched on that at the start. I think beyond that, it's it's having a consistency of approach because you know the promise of this technology you know, one within crypto, these new products that clients want to invest in and trade, um, but also is this a better system for, you know, accounting, recording, value, value transfer? And, and is that something that's going to sort of mobilize across other asset classes? It's going to take a while to play out. We, we liken it to a little, a little bit like the electronification of markets, you know, think about the the introduction of a central limit order book, the RF request for quote like process, making liquidity buying and selling much more automated and electronic that took, and is still, you know, by no means complete. That's spreading across different asset classes. That's been a 20 year journey and asset classes that were, that suited that better went first. You know, this feels to us like a similar 
sort of technology journey, but focused on the post-trade side, like the asset storage, asset custody, asset settlement and transfer, you know, it's going to take a long time as well. It's going to take, it's probably going to take hold in, in different asset classes first, you know, bonds have come up uh, and have, we've seen a lot of innovation there, private equity, potentially given the, the, the liquidity challenges in that asset class, maybe some commodities like uh, gold, essentially, those are the areas we've seen early innovation in, in putting these assets into token form rather than their traditional form. But it's important and where we have seen partners and clients succeed is when they've been consistent with their build out, irrespective of is this the bit the middle of a bull market and we've got support to build something or is this the heart of the bear market like we're in at the moment where if you start to shutter the the efforts that you're doing at this stage and then the market turns, it's going to be hard to mobilize again and you will have lost some some ground building, building out your services. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. In some ways, it's it's quite surprising that the the progress and the the institutional buy-in for tokenizing private equity is linked to the performance of the crypto market because those are are kind of quite separate value propositions, right? Like, you know, the, the DLT ification of of private equity can be useful or not, whether or not the Bitcoin price is going up and down. But it does seem like those have been correlated in terms of the interest there well I, th- I think it speaks to understanding and uh, many people across the market depending on how closely coupled they are with the asset class and digital assets or crypto you know as it has evolved it's evolved into you know multiple different things in our view crypto is just the first asset class on this technology but you could also put traditional asset classes on this technology that technology could be largely public infrastructure being public open source blockchains or it could be privately operated distributed ledger technology referred to as dlt but it's very easy if you're not following the asset class or the technology closely to bucket it all in as one thing and not really separate that out and i think that's a challenge that everyone that's trying to mobilize product in this area faces on a day-to-day basis yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It's certainly something that, that we encounter talking to the, the official sector about this as well. I mean, after the, the crypto winter, there's yeah just been a lot more skepticism about the technology when very little about you know what went wrong in the crypto winter was, was really technology related. But let's talk about applying the, the technology then rather than the crypto asset class. Let's talk about how, how that technology is, is starting to be applied in, in traditional finance. And, you know, we started with regulation before, and I think that's, that's a very important piece. Can you talk a little bit about the, the EU has a, a DLT pilot regime and the UK, I think, is, is in the consultation process for a digital security sandbox. Can you talk about, you know, what, what the benefit of regulatory uh, sandboxes and, and provisos like that are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's something we are very excited about, firstly, prior to the EU framework, you know, what it effectively gives is someone like TPI Cap, who are a venue operator, you know, whether that is MTFs and OTFs in Europe, ATSs in the US, it gives us an opportunity to innovate and experiment with the trading and settlement of DLT based instruments on venue, which previously wasn't possible because we didn't have the regulatory framework that allowed us to do 
such. So it's a it's a pretty big step forward, we think, for the industry. It's for the first time allows firms like TPI Cap. It also allows uh, CSDs to experiment with this kind of issuance trading and settlement of DLT-based instruments. So when we think about our tokenization strategy, we have a view that a lot of the work that has already been done in building out the client connectivity execution methodology for customers, we don't necessarily think much of that is going to change significantly. It's really on the kind of creation and the settlement of these instruments on this new technology where you're going to see the most disruption. But in order to kind of prove that hypothesis, you obviously need to be able to innovate and experiment. And back to the start of the conversation, without the appropriate regulation, firms like TPI Cap, who are heavily regulated as a FTSE 250 company, can't really move. So this is something that we have a huge focus on. Again, we, we touched on it. Paris is our continental home in Europe. So that, that means we already have a huge amount of client connectivity in the region across different asset classes. So then it's thinking about how do we leverage the venue operations and the client connectivity and apply that to this new regulatory framework and experiment and innovate with the trading and settlement of DLT-based instruments. So we think it's really quite pivotal. We think it's a, a huge step forward for the industry. And to your point, the UK is in consultation in its consultation phase, and, and we're keeping a close eye on that and, and what that will mean. Uh, and there's a good chance we are active in, in both. Yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting process. I think, yeah, you know, demonstrating that, you know, the technology can play a different role in providing, you know, settlement security, I think is a, is a very exciting step forward for, for the market to be taking. When you're looking at asset classes for tokenization, it seems to me like there's there's broadly two philosophies. One is tokenizing things like ETFs and you know quite quite efficiently traded liquid products, but you know giving a sort of incremental improvement by by creating a tokenized version of those. And then the other is illiquid illiquid uh, asset classes like uh, like private debt and private equity can you talk a little bit about you know the advantages and disadvantages that that you're seeing of each of those or or maybe where where do you feel like the most exciting opportunities and the most work is going into tokenizing traditional securities sure good question and look i think you read you can read a lot in the press about failed efforts in tokenization that date back many years and I think to some degree that is deserved and true. I think there's a real chicken and egg situation going on at the moment where I think people that know the technology know that it's uh, you know, possible to settle quicker, reduce fails, automate processes, bring down operational costs. But you're talking about a key question of adoption right now. Like It's not much use if only 1% of the market can blockchain enabled i.e they have a digital wallet they can hold digital assets they can you know reconcile digital assets it feeds into their portfolio management system etc cetera, etc cetera. you're not going to get any of these benefits if only one percent of the market are using it and the question around why should a investor invest in this type of infrastructure so that they can settle and hold and, and trade digital assets and 
you know, you need a strong narrative to force organizations to do this. And what we've observed in the market is, is, you know, crypto has been a sort of gateway process to this. Like there has been a investment case around it for those that want to hold spot. They've had to go on the journey of getting a digital custodian, understanding how, how to hold a blockchain based asset or a DLT based asset, set up that infrastructure, learn how to do it. And once they've got that, they realize that, you know, they'll be able to hold other ones, like whether that's a digital bond or, or a digital digital equity that was a previously a private equity. Without that, what you have is a lot of issuers and issuers can be, you know, banks or fintechs or uh, buy sort of buy side firms going, we will, we want to issue our products as a, a digital asset and they can experiment. They've done that. They've got it into the hands of certain investors. I think bonds have been a focal point because there's more issuances of them than there are of equities, for example. That's one one good reason. But where a lot of those projects have struggled previously is they, is how many people can actually hold and trade these. And even when they've managed to sort the primary issuance, I get into the hands of investors, there hasn't been secondary markets in place for them to have ongoing liquidity. And if you don't have those key pieces that form a market, these are only ever going to be sort of in effect proof of concept and they're not going to get wide scale adoption. So I think what you've seen from a lot of the issuers is experimentation across the asset classes to try and get something to stick and get sort of adoption from clients but you know the reality is i think until a wider percent of the market can have these capabilities and can hold these assets it's always going to be a challenge to to move beyond that stage and and as such i think what people and what sort of issuers should be thinking about is where can we solve some problems you know where are current markets problematic you know take bonds for an example most markets are T plus two on bonds. There's a lot of settlement fails. People aren't, uh, you know, often don't have the collateral to deliver. Firms bear a lot of costs, whether that be holding capital to against to guarantee trades. They get hit with late settlement fines. The organizations have huge operational teams in place to kind of manage this settlement process. And it's a big drag on markets operators, banks, et cetera. So if you can get, if you can dramatically bring those costs down and say to an investor by holding this digital bond, it's going to be cheaper. You know, your utility of the asset will go up because it will settle quicker and you can put a value proposition like that to an investor. I think you're likely to see more success. Hmm. I was just going to add in there actually, Lewis. And I think that another thing we are seeing is obviously you've got regulation now when we think about tokenization starting to become a little clearer you obviously over the last 18 months you've had some significant investment banks that have come out with tokenization platforms you have some of the world's leading custodians kind of thinking about how do they think through the custody of tokenized assets so I think over the course of the next 12, 18, 24 months, you're going to see some of these industry partners that are servicing particular parts of the value chain start to work together. And by working together, you start to present something to investors and to clients that feels much more scalable, as opposed to rewind three, four, five years, you are potentially creating some type of a platform that 
you know, services the the full life cycle of a trade, which is very interesting. And it is absolutely, it was necessary at the time, but it doesn't necessarily get that much interest from clients because it's not a scalable solution. And in the short term, it actually creates more problems than it does create create efficiencies and benefits. Whereas now, because you do have a number of traditional financial intermediaries who are at a similar stage in their journey and they are rolling out their initial implementations of whether it's custody or execution or issuance, suddenly you can create an ecosystem that looks like it has some scale and will then deliver on some of the promises that we've talked about over the last four or five years. I think it's just a timing thing, but I think some of that will start to potentially become a little clearer over the next year or two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just just on that point of, you know, kind of achieving a sort of critical mass, there's one one aspect of that that I'd like your thoughts on, and, and that is a need for some kind of standardization, because as you mentioned, there's a lot of different institutions running their own tokenization plays. And if we're getting towards a situation where these are using different blockchain protocols in order to make sure we're not fragmenting the liquidity of the assets, there needs to be some kind of robust solution for inter interchain trading, you know, interoperability bridges or something like that. But that seems to me to be quite a tricky technical challenge, particularly because, you know, if I've issued a very clever smart security with smart contracts automating the lifecycle operations, and then I want to trade that to somebody who wants to hold it on a different chain, porting the smart contract over, I think is going to be a big challenge there. So do we need I guess what, what do we need to establish some kind of you know standardization that will allow us to to build up the sort of critical mass that, that we need for this to be a functional market? It's a brilliant question, and I think there's no good answer at this stage other than it's part of the litmus test of the stage of development we're in, which is there has been no decision or across the market on which sort of blockchain infrastructure to coalesce around. You know, you still, it's still unclear whether it's going to be open source public blockchains with, you know, Ethereum being a kind of early leader on the tokenization side or whether it's sort of a commissioned industry DLT that sort of multiple banks and custodians and markets operators kind of coalesce around. I think each of these blockchain infrastructures, if your digital wallet holder or whether that's something you've built yourself whether it's something you've outsourced whether you've subcustodied with a firm that doesn't limit which blockchain or dlt that you can hold assets for it just depends on what your custodian provider has technically connected to i think that where you know we can look to the crypto ecosystem for some guidance on this in terms of you know you've seen bridging as a and, and bridging meaning the idea of issuing an asset onto another chain and locking it on its previous chain so that you can kind of flip assets between different chains. There's been some well-publicized issues with that, hacks, et cetera. It's by no means a mature process. I think if you did that with regulated assets in large scale in traditional finance, you need to be much better or have a higher degree of confidence that that technology is uh, robust before you start bringing that to traditional markets. I think over time, in my opinion, 
we will coalesce around a few key DLTs or public blockchains. I think that once you get to that stage, that will limit to some degree the issues that we have. And it may be that, you know, different asset classes exist on different underlying infrastructure. You know, one one problem we have in the market currently is if you want to compress settlement times and you issue your asset on on a DLT, you're still you still face the problem of settling the cash leg on traditional infrastructure. And that may not move at the same pace that the the digital asset moves at. So when you think about the the process of a transaction and a maybe delivery versus payment where you've got two assets involved, that is a current sort of manifestation of this problem where the if you have the two assets on different technologies, how do you ensure that that transaction happens and both sides get their leg of the transaction? And that's obviously much easier to do if it's on the same tech underlying technology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, a lot of challenges there. But I think what you highlighted there about custodians being able to, you know, they just have to connect to enough chains and that that kind of makes it a, a problem for a piece of market infrastructure rather than the users. So I think that'll be an interesting development. There was one other thing I, I wanted to ask about here, and that's, you know, I think there's a really interesting sort of horseshoe effect taking place where the, the crypto asset market is taking on, as you mentioned, some of the, the rules and structures of traditional finance. And then we've talked extensively about the application of the technology that underpins crypto to, uh, to traditional instruments. And I think, you know, we mentioned tokenized ETFs earlier, but the other side of that, where people can get exposure to crypto assets via ETFs, you know, formats that they're already very comfortable with in traditional finance, I think that's a really interesting development and we're seeing some some legal battles with the SEC and Grayscale in the US about setting up a spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Do you feel like obviously, you know, you're you're promoting tokenization, so it's it's a slightly strange development there, but yeah, I'd be interested in in if you think that's a valuable development and if it's going to ha- if it's going to last. Yeah, it's certainly topical, isn't it? Will we, won't we get a Bitcoin spot ETF? Look, I, th- I think there's no doubt that the amount of investor capital that exists that a spot-based Bitcoin ETF would unlock is significant. And that's why you have, I think it's, it's, I think it's almost double digit now in terms of the number of applications we've seen and, and kickstarted earlier this summer by BlackRock. So when you have someone like BlackRock who are throwing their hat into the ring to launch a Bitcoin spot ETF, you would assume that they've done some reasonable research in terms of what that might mean in terms of demand, in terms of sentiment across their client base. So, yeah, I think those traditional wrappers specifically for crypto are very important because that, again, is what breeds and brings confidence and trust and they're the things that I would say, as an industry, we have maybe been lacking. And through the events of 2022, you know, the, they're the things that I think everybody has been more focused on. So if you were to see one of these ETFs approved from one of these names that are household names in the US, you know, whether that's through your RIA, 
then you have to assume that that's going to add a degree of trust and confidence and credibility that may unlock some capital into this space that previously was on the sidelines. So I think it's talked about at length, and I think it's probably talked about at length for good reason, because I think, you know, the sheer unlock of capital that would potentially come is, is going to be pretty significant for the industry. I think I'd add I'd add to that. These what we're talking about here is a delivery mechanism of a financial product. And that Bitcoin when it first came onto the scene, the only way to access it was by owning outright spot Bitcoin through a digital wallet. And actually it was incredibly hard to do that back in two thousand and nine. Over time, you know, the, platforms services apps have been built to simplify that process but as we previously talked about in the podcast not many traditional financial investors have access to those or can get those approved currently so what we've seen from traditional finance is providing access to bitcoin through traditional pipes effectively and you know whether that be as exchange listed futures on the cme whether that be a futures based etf or now potentially a spot-based ETF, that's, those are different, different delivery mechanisms. And what you get is a different addressable market with that. It just so happens that there's a lot of people that have access to ETFs um, infrastructure-wise, and therefore by making spot Bitcoin available on that delivery mechanism, you, ha- you increase your addressable market. I do think there is a question here, though, for people that believe quite strongly in the technology the best outcome is for more people to engage with the technology and but the best way to do that is to get a digital custodian and be able to hold those assets directly so there is a sort of question here as to you know if you facilitate access to the product through an alternative mechanism or wrapper like an etf you know, ultimately, then it's going to be your ETF issuer that is holding the, the physical asset. And maybe that's not, maybe that's going to slow the adoption of the investors actually engaging with the technology directly and outsource that to their ETF provider. But maybe that's, you know, the way that investors will want to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it would seem a very interestingly inefficient way of doing things if BlackRock issued a Bitcoin ETF and then tokenized all their ETFs and you ended up getting tokenized exposure to Bitcoin ETF. It seemed like a lot of extra layers to, to get a digital asset. But, you know, as, as Simon was talking about, the, the value of, you know, trust in these institutions is is tangible and makes makes a difference for, for a big section of the market. This has been a fascinating chat, guys. I think we're running out of time now. So anything else you wanted to, to highlight just before I before I sign off? No, not at all. I mean, if you want to learn more about our services at TPICAP, then we're uh, tpicap.com forward slash digital assets. Uh, You can find both Simon and I on Twitter and LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out if you've got any questions. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks, Duncan. And yeah, thank you for coming as well, Simon. Absolute pleasure. Appreciate you having us on.
So thank you to Duncan and Simon for joining us. Thank you to all our listeners for, for tuning in. We are available on Spotify and Podbean and on the website at OnFifth On Demand. Check out the website for more news, commentaries, upcoming events, and of course, our reports. And if you're interested in this topic in particular, uh, we have our digital assets report being published on September 28th. Uh, TPI Cap, whom you've heard from today, are one of our partners there. And we go into a lot of the topics that we've that we've covered today in a bit more detail. So a lot uh, to go into there. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.